work through this story. I mean, it's a, it's a random, it seems like a random story. But we are being taught, very clearly taught about the work and the ways that God provides for his people. And so let's think through 1 Samuel 9, four different ways that God provides for his people. First, God's providence is very ordinary. God's providence is ordinary. God works in and through ordinary situations to do really amazing, supernatural, monumental things. And so let's consider this. If you go back to 1 Samuel 8 and kind of think about how the chapter ended, I think it was last week we did this when we said Israel wanted a king. And we were talking, why, why did they want a king? Because they wanted someone to fight their battles. And they wanted to be like the nation's. And remember how Samuel felt about that? It's discouraged to him. Like, I mean, it's, he's being replaced. And what does God say to Samuel? He says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. But then God says something surprising. He says, give them a king anyways. Give them a king. This is not right, and it is not good. They have rejected me, yet I want you to give them a king anyways. And so this is how chapter 8 ends. And so you're anticipating now Samuel's role is to find this king. And so you can, as you're following along with the story, you're expecting this to be chapter 9. The first couple of verses of chapter 9, you meet a farmer. His name is Kish. He was a wealthy farmer. He has a son. His son's name is Saul. He is handsome. He is tall. And we begin to think, just naturally reading 1 Samuel 8 with 1 Samuel 9, what do we think? This is the king. Handsome and tall. Sounds like he could fight the battles that Israel is, is looking to have fought for them. And so you're beginning to kind of connect the dots logically in the story. But then you get to verse 3, and you're, you're again anticipating Samuel and Saul meeting, a coronation. The king has come. This is what... God says to give them the king. This is the man that we anticipate is going to be the king. You get to verse 3, and it's this bizarre shift in the story. Very anticlimactic. Not at all, I, I can just tell you, not at all what any of you were expecting. What does it say? Now the donkeys of Kish. Why are we talking about donkeys? Like, where did this come from? Like, what kind of story is this? And for the next 10 verses, we've got all these verses about these missing donkeys. I know nothing about donkeys, but apparently they were smart. They were protective of the different animals. They were like trucks. I mean, they were steady. And so donkeys were really important. But still, why are we talking about donkeys? You can almost hear Kish screaming at the kids, who left the gate open? The donkeys have gone wandering again. You need to go find these donkeys. And all of a sudden, we go from just in our minds, the king is about to have a coronation ceremony to we're like on a farm. And the gate's been left open, and the donkeys have gone out, and the dad's yelling at the kids, go find the donkeys. And they're grabbing a shirt. It's like these two different scenes that we're not sure exactly how they connect, but this this is how God is working. And so 
he gets a farmhand, a servant. They go searching. They search all the hills and all the surrounding communities. Saul gets, gets discouraged. He starts to think, well, maybe we should go back. And the servant says, well, no, there's this guy who has all the answers. Maybe he can help us find him. And this is, this is kind of the feel of what God is doing in these 10 verses. But, but this, is, this is what's so great about what God is doing. This is completely ordinary, completely ordinary. There's no thunder. There's no fireworks show. There's no grand meeting. The donkeys have been lost, and they're going to find them. And what we know and what we see in the text, that God is using this very probably frustrating and very ordinary situation on a farm, and he's using this ordinary situation to do something so monumental. And this is how God works. And I think it's important for us to not just zoom past these details, but to stop and to, to realize God's providence still today works through very mundane, day-to-day, ordinary situations. And for us to realize that, that God does great things through ordinary things, ordinary people and ordinary situations. And so for us, as we consider that we don't know always what God is doing, and we'll we'll get there, yet, even in the ordinary, God does great things. And so the call for us is to be faithful, to be joyful, even in the small daily tasks of changing diapers, sitting in the cubicle, going on a walk and going to the grocery store and taking your kids to practice and interacting with people you work with and going to a meeting that, that got knowing God was about to make a king out of a lost donkey. And by the way, God constantly in the history of the Bible does great things to really just normal, mundane, ordinary things. Jesus was born just like the rest of us. Mary was pregnant for nine months. She was born in a quiet stable. I mean, just, just normal. Yet we see time and time again, God's ways come about through normal things. And so for us to recognize and to be faithful and to be watchful, knowing God does great things through mundane, ordinary ways. But it wasn't just that God's providence was ordinary. That, that comes I think, across strongly in the text with the donkeys. But it's also, I think, a point about God's providence that comes to the text is that his providence was completely unknown. And I think this may be the strongest point of the whole text, that Saul doesn't know what's happening. I mean, that's pretty obvious. I mean, he's completely clueless. And and I'm not blaming Saul for being clueless, but it is kind of funny Whose idea is it to keep looking for the donkeys that would eventually cause them to meet Samuel? It's not, not the future king. You would almost anticipate that, right? Saul, the king, would be the one that says, well, let's, let's keep going. But what does Saul want to do? He wants to go home, pack it in. He is done looking for these things. But the servant says, no, let's keep going. Then he meets the women at the well, which, by the way, that's I mean, a, a theme through Scripture that women at wells, meeting them, and they, they are ushering in an important part of what God's doing in the age. They meet the, the women at the well. They direct them to go to the city gates, and that's where they bump into Saul. And I like, I think verse 18 speaks to this idea of 
being unknown to what God is doing. Look at what, look at what Saul does. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? I mean, Saul literally bumps into the man. It hits him in the face. And he still is not connecting that. This is the prophet, This is the prophet, Saul. Yet Saul is clueless. And again, I'll say, I don't blame him. Like, it's not like he's done something wrong that's caused him to miss this prophecy that God has told him, you're going to be the king. No, he just isn't aware of what God is doing. Yeah, we know God is doing great things behind the scenes. But I think this, too, is a really important application point for us as we consider the work and the ways that God provides for our needs today. And it's to, to realize that oftentimes when we survey what we face today, we don't understand what God's doing. We don't see it. And it bumps us in the face, hits us in the face, and, and we aren't sure exactly why we face what we face and our challenges that we face. And so as we think about this as application, I think there's an apologetic way of this helping us. There's a personal way. When it comes to apologetics, I remember taking a class in seminary, and one of the professors, we were talking about uh, how to defend our faith, and, and he was telling us about one of the ways that people who reject God seek to prove this. So atheists who seek to prove that God doesn't exist will use logic or proofs to try to show that it is illogical and inconsistent to say there's a God. And so one of these, one of these proofs that they use is called the logical problem of the existence of God. So hang with me. But what they try to do is say, we're going to give you two statements, okay? And if these two statements are inconsistent, both cannot be true. So, for example, it is raining outside, and it is not raining outside. Two statements. If we can show one to be true, the other, by definition, cannot be true at the same time. If it's raining, it cannot also be not raining at the same time. And so they try to do this with the two statements on the screen. God exists and is omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good. Another statement, there is evil. And what they say, that is since we know, and we would all attest that there is evil and there's bad and there's pain in this world, that being true, by definition, makes a God who is powerful and good and all-knowing not possible. Or they say it like this. An omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good being would have no good reason for allowing evil. Therefore, a good God can't exist because there is evil. Now, here's the problem with, with this form of logic based on what we're talking about here is that there could be a good reason for God allowing the tough things to happen. That that we can't say that there isn't a good reason for God allowing donkeys to go missing, bad things to happen, because that would put us in this position of having to say, I know every possible reason God might have for allowing this hard thing to happen. And I think we would all say, well, we don't know. God's, like we see here, 
God's reasons for doing things are unknown to us, but that's not to say that there couldn't be a good reason out of the millions of potential possibilities and options, there, there might be one by which God is allowing this evil to happen for some good reason. And so we would reject this and say, well, well we believe that these both can be true at the same time. But more than just logic and apologetics, I think personally, it's just important for us to recognize this together. Now, we, we don't always understand how God's providing for us as people. I had a phone call this week from a former student from Virginia. He was frustrated. He was frustrated about his job. Why, why is this my job? I went to school for this. And now this is my job, and I don't like my job, and I'm just frustrated, and I'm frustrated with what God's doing, and I'm not happy in my job. And I said, well, you called me the wrong week because you're about to hear a sermon <laughs> about Saul and donkeys. But I told him, I said, listen, and I have to tell this to myself all the time, that when we just pause and look at what's happening around us, often we would say, I, I don't know why God is doing this. Why, do I, why this job, as he said? Why am I unhappy? This is not how I planned my exit from college. Yet I told him, we can trust God and his providence and his care for us. Listen, even when we don't understand what's happening to us, why because we know and we have faith and believe that there could be a million things God is doing in his power that he is arranging and orchestrating that at the outcome, there could be some good thing that he's trying to do. And so our understanding is not needed for us to trust him. And let me just say this quickly. We may never understand, and I, I say this pretty often with you, we may never understand why things happen to us. Never. Not, not like in five years, you may look back and still be just as puzzled about why this loss, why this situation, why this pain. It may be 10 years, 20, 50. You may be in heaven someday and still look back and say, I don't understand. Okay, but it's okay. Because our understanding is not needed for us to trust that God is good and his providence is there and he is providing for our needs, even if we can't ever comprehend it. And to me, this, this is Saul here. He doesn't see it coming. He has no clue. Yet, clearly, God is working. And so if you are confused or angry or better about your situation, hold on in faith, God's goodness through his providence for you. But we keep going about God's providence here. One of my, my favorite parts of the chapter is verse 15 through 17. And if you read the story kind of slowly, verse 15 through 17, it, it stands out because it's really not needed for the, for the, as the story kind of unfolds. I call this the light bulb the light bulb moment where all of a sudden, the language of like, well, you just happen to get here at the right time. If you just go now and talk to, to the prophet, you know, like this, just by chance, 
Everything just, they just happened to stop in Zuff, which was, which was where Samuel's great-grandfather was from. They just happened to get to the women at the well just at the right time because like all these just happens. In verse 15 through 17, you kind of, the, the curtain gets pulled back and you realize these, these things didn't just happen. God was in charge of every single moment. Look at verse 15 through 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel Tomorrow, about this time, like this second, this moment, I will send to you a man. I love that. He's not just wandering around looking for some donkeys. God sent Saul to exactly where he wanted him from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. God is clearly dictating orchestrating everything that to us before verse 15 sounds, seems completely random, like just happens to be the right time. Yet there's a couple other things that we see about God's providence here. First, we see his providence is gracious. Look at verse 16. I'll put it in yellow on the screen. This man, talking about Saul, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, why is this gracious? What about this shows us that God's providence is full of grace? And, I, and as I read this for the first time, it, it did cause me to pause because it just didn't sit right with me. Why didn't it sit right with me? Because we just, I just spent a whole week studying chapter 18 or chapter 8. Look at verse 18. I, I don't think it's on the screen. I'll read it to you. And in that day, so back just the last chapter, God's speaking to Samuel. In that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So God concludes chapter 8 saying, a day's going to come, Israel, where you're going to cry out and you're going to need me. And I'm not going to be there to rescue you. You're going to be stuck in the sin and the decision you freely made yourselves. Yet here in chapter 9, what does he say? My people have cried out for me, and I've heard them, and I'm going to save them. What is this? Well, it's a couple things. First, it's not time for him to not hear them yet. So that's going to come later. But what this is is a picture of grace. God doesn't give them what they deserve, that his providence and his working and the way he deals and provides for us isn't based on what we, what we deserve. And aren't we thankful for that? And our sin and our stubbornness and our consistently going back to the same sin doesn't derail the providence and the plan and the providing that God has for you. God's plan will go on. And then the last observation from the text. Look again at verse 16. We start to see how God's providence is purposeful. Okay, so ordinary. It's ordinary. It's unknown. It's gracious. And it's purposeful. God is taking them somewhere. The path leads somewhere. The path was leading to the ring and to the flowers. God's path is leading Israel. We've been saying it from the very beginning of our study in 1 Samuel. What's God leading the people to do? He's reaching down. Here's, here's what we said in week one. God is reaching down into the hopelessness, the turmoil, 
and the dysfunction. He is providentially leading people to worship the one true king. And this is the path he's taking them on. And we see it here in verse 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. And you just pause there for a second. And this is what I thought when I read it. Why? Why call him prince? It's a weird Hebrew word. Like he's going to be called king later from God. Why is he calling him prince here? And so you look up the word. It means a, it means a spiritual leader, kind of a smaller king, less important king. He's a prince. So what, why is God using this word? Because God wants to make it really, really clear. He is not your king. He is not your king. He's going to be your spiritual leader. But three times in this little this little behind-the-curtain scene, 15 through 17, God says, my people, my people, my people. Three times, right in a row. As if to say, I am the king, and he will be my little prince. He'll be my nice little guy. He's the prince, and you can, but he is not the king that you turn to, Israel. He is not the answer. He is not the solution. I am the king. You are my people. And so we know that this is part of what God's providence is doing. He is leading the people, even through giving them a king, to show them he is not their king. And so for us this morning, for you, if you feel stuck in the mundane, in the everyday, just whatever it is you face, the routine of Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the encouragement for you today is to be faithful to be obedient, to be aware that God works in supernatural ways through ordinary people on ordinary days doing ordinary things like looking for donkeys. And if you're confused this morning about what, why all this is happening, my encouragement to you is to, that it's okay. Like it's okay to be confused and it's okay to not understand but that you, at the same time that you're confused and you're discouraged and you're upset, at the same time, I, my encouragement is to, for you to bow your knee and to pray and to say, God, I trust you. I don't understand you, but I trust you. And my anchor is not on my understanding of everything that's happening to you. No, that's not my anchor. My anchor point is you are good you are powerful, and you know everything. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. And for all of us to know that his plan, it is covered in grace, covered in grace. And, and through, for all of us, he's leading us about to teach us every day that he is the only one worthy for us to worship, not these other little princes, but he is the worthy king of our worship and our lives. So let's pray to that end. Father, we do thank you for this story where we see very clearly how you're in charge. Even through little daily frustrating tasks, you're in charge and you're doing something. You're teaching, you're teaching Saul, you're teaching Samuel some really important lessons about you. And so God, I pray that this week as we go to work and we take our kids around town and as we 
have meetings and go for walks and go to the grocery store, all the things that we do. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to you. Be watchful for what you're doing. We'd be anticipating for how you're teaching us to worship you and to help others worship you as the only king. And God, I pray for those who come here this morning who are in a situation that it's confusing to them. And they're not sure what you're doing. God, I pray that you would help them to put their trust in you, even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. That they would trust your goodness, they would trust your knowledge, and they would trust your power. That you are doing millions of things that we can't see, that we don't need to see, but at the same time, we can trust you. And so, God, we, we pray as we sing this last song that you would help us to hold onto your faithfulness for us. It's in the name of your son we pray, amen.